Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Dennis Kane, Senior Vice President at Tyler & Company, an executive search firm specializing in the placement of healthcare, academic, and life science executives. Dennis has been involved in executive search for 20 years. Prior to working in executive search, Dennis was involved in healthcare delivery, working his way up through various leadership roles in a national hospital management firm, and ultimately serving as CEO of Lower Bucks Hospital, a community hospital in Bristol, Pennsylvania. In this podcast, I talk with Dennis about his career and how his leadership experiences in healthcare delivery inform his work in executive search today, and how executive search firms work with their clients to find the right executives to fill the right jobs. We conclude with a discussion about leadership, and Dennis offers advice for early careerists. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed, thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening. And here is Dennis Kane. Welcome to The Forge, Dennis. Thanks. You went to Lafayette College in eastern Pennsylvania. What drew you to Lafayette, and, and what did you study? I grew up outside of Philadelphia in New Jersey, and I had become aware of Lafayette through uh, my older brothers who had applied there. And my study was in pre-med, but I majored in history to hedge the bet. Okay. So you had an interest in, in healthcare right from the get-go. Yes, I come from a long line of physicians. As a matter of fact, five generations all went to the same medical school, but physics knocked me out. I couldn't do anything oh. better than a C in physics. So uh, my father, who was a chief of medicine at the time, suggested a field of hospital management. And I looked at it and decided I wanted to do it and took an internship while I was still an undergrad down at the local hospital. And then I went straight to graduate school. Okay. I thought, I thought that was the case. And you went to graduate school at, at George Washington University, where you earned your master's in healthcare administration. This is a pretty early commitment to the field. So you knew right away after that, after that internship that this was something you wanted to do. Yes, it was. It fit a number of the, the things that I liked. I was close to patient care, kind of grew up around patient care. I used to uh, go into the hospital before uh, with my dad when he used to do rounds or do house calls. I wouldn't sit in the exam room, but I was always around the, the field. With GW, it was a, a two-year program at the time, one-year class and in D.C., and then a one-year residency, administrative residency that was required to get the master's. And my goal was to go down to D.C. for a year and then get back to Philadelphia to do the residency. Where did you do your residency? I did it at a uh, for-profit, for-hospital firm called RH Medical at the time. And they had just opened up a brand new hospital in Bucks County called Warminster. And so I went up there to do the residency ostensibly with the, the corporation with some rotation to the different hospitals. But after a few months, they signed me up to be an assistant administrator uh, straight away because they were in need of, of leadership at the time. I was one of only two people that had a, well, pending master's degree within the whole company. Wow. Okay. So is that where you stayed after, after your graduation? Well, I did. As a matter of fact, uh, my residency completed, even though I was online with a, a job, took the degree and was hired there officially as an assistant administrator as opposed to a resident. And I stayed there as an assistant administrator and ultimately became uh, uh, a COO at the same hospital. I remained there for nine years. Oh, wow. Okay. So you worked your way up from assistant administrator to, to COO. What would you say were the important lessons you learned during that first tour with, with, with your first hospital? They had recruited in a uh, new CEO who, ironically, had attended the same graduate school at GW, and he had been featured on the, the cover of the periodical, the national periodical at the time that featured uh, for-profit hospitals. And he became a mentor and coach to me. It was like going to graduate school a second time because he was very strong on the finance side. That At the time, that was not one of the strengths of the master's program in D.C. 
So I learned a whole lot about healthcare finance through the CEO. What would you say was different about working at a for-profit hospital system than a, a non-for-profit? Well, at the time, uh, since I broke in on the for-profit side, I really didn't know the difference. However, sure. after being there for six years, we were acquired in one of the more unique transactions you could invent. St. Christopher's Hospital for Children floated a tax-exempt bond issue to purchase this for-hospital system, if you will. And so the hospital where I was converted from being for-profit to non-profit. Oh, so wow. to get to uh, the answer your question, suddenly we had different leaders who came from the nonprofit side, and I saw a whole lot more politics involved, where it was uh, on the for-profit side, it was very clean. You kept the doctors happy, you, you kept a good operation, and everybody was focused. On the nonprofit side at the time, we suddenly were uh, involved with different decisions of, of folks uh, providing uh, vendor relationships that were close to the new owners. And we, it just, it was a, a different experience that we had to adapt to. I used to say there was a whole lot more noise at the time, but it, it clearly was different. There was one potential donor to this new organization that the CEO didn't and turned down a half a million dollar donation. And we thought, wait a minute, are you supposed to be doing that in the nonprofit side? <laughs> wow. So you stayed there, you said nine years? Yes. So some of that tenure was on the for-profit side of the fence, and the last three years were on the non-profit side That's of the fence, but it was in the same hospital. Yeah. That's very interesting because, I mean, typically today we see it going the opposite direction. Mostly it's nonprofits turning to for-profit, in my observation. Kind of a unique thing. It was. It was, it was clearly unique. The local township wasn't very happy because we came off the tax rolls. And at the time, uh, as it turned out, we were like the third largest tax paying entity in the township. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you stayed there nine years, and then you moved on to a firm called Medic, is that right? Or Medic? It, it's Medic. And at the time, it was a completely different organization that one had ultimately used to. But in the 80s, it was a, uh, it traded on the American Stock Exchange. It was a hospital management and services firm that had a series of different companies that provided services to hospitals, architectural, joint ventures, equipment leasing, and hospital management, to name a few. So my role was a director of operations on the hospital management and consulting side. Essentially, Medic, what happened in the acquisition back with RH Medical was that they received a favorable tax ruling from the IRS that allowed for these four hospitals to be sold to St. Chris and with a new company being able to be developed called Medic. So I was oh. basically joining a lot of the people that I knew from before. Okay. Uh, the, short, the short story was that when we did the acquisition, the, the feeling was that we would still manage the hospitals that St. Chris bought, but that changed at the last minute. So okay. uh, I went and joined my, my friends back at Medic, which had uh, developed into a hospital management services company, just not a hospital ownership company. I see. So... Can you talk a little bit about what that what what does that mean to be a, a director of operations for a hospital management company? What was a day in your life like? Sure. I was responsible for a number of professional consultants that provided support for existing hospital management contracts that were in place. Plus, we were also involved in the development of new ventures. In the 80s, Mark, a lot of new ventures were underway. People were investing in all kinds of new things. So on one hand, we would oversee the management of four or five acute care hospitals in Pennsylvania primarily and a couple of nursing homes. And then uh, we also were involved with the development of some joint ventures. I particularly enjoyed being in uh, joint ventures with physicians. Uh, we put together a ambulatory surgical center that was owned by 40 surgeons. We did a joint venture on a um, freestanding lithotriptor when Dornier came out with the first kidney stone uh, lithotriptor product that was very successful and still operating today, 30 years later. Wow. And we, all, we also did a national joint venture with Dean Witter, remember that? And we put I together, uh, raised a lot of money to do freestanding imaging centers when MRI first came out. And my responsibility was to, in addition to those other pieces, was to manage the imaging centers that were up. So I had a a fair amount of ambulatory um, management experience at the time. How much were you involved in, in new business acquisition for the firm? 
On the M&A side, a bit here or there, because we were still uh, purchasing other types of companies, some of which were brought into our division. We also did a fair amount of review of hospital ops as we were still proposing on other management contracts. So you stayed with Medic for about seven years, it looks like, and then you moved to to join Lower Bucks Hospital in Bristol, Pennsylvania. And you were at Lower... The last... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. The last two years of my tenure with Medic was serving as the CEO of Lower Bucks Hospital. What happened was oh, that uh, okay. as we got a new management contract, it was for a hospital that was about 18 minutes from where I lived, and I, I was married and had children at the time, and I wanted to stop traveling as much. So I served as the CEO of a community hospital, which, by the way, when I went to GW, that was my goal, was to be trained so that I could run a community hospital. And so here I was doing exactly what it was that I I was trained for. It happened to be under the umbrella of a management contract with Medic, but I stepped into a 300-bed hospital that uh, was in need of some leadership. So the two years, my first two years at Lower Box were under the management agreement, and then the last six when the management agreement ended, I worked for the board directly. How did Lower Bucks come to hire, hire or come to use Medic to provide them with a CEO? Why not just search for a CEO? They had had some turnover at the CEO level, and they the board had promoted someone that was not panning out, and they had had a longtime CEO, and then the person they promoted didn't work, and. The board was guided, if you will, to come down the road, not too far away, to the medic headquarters and reached out to medic. And we proposed to manage them. And part of our proposal was a guarantee that we wouldn't cost them any money, that we would either reduce expenses or increase revenues to match our fee. So they accepted the proposal and we started the management contract. And I went up there as the sole medic employee on the job to be the CEO of the hospital. Interesting. Did, were you able to reach back to medic for other kinds of support as you needed, or were you really kind of just out there on your own? Well, actually, it's the very same support that I used to oversee when I was the director of operations. I was in charge of the professional support services that provided this type of help to the, the leaders of the um, managed contracts that we had in those hospitals. So Basically, I knew all the talent that was back there, and yes, there was a, um, a schedule of regular support that was provided to me. Oh, nice. So at the, the contract ran out after two years. How did they make the decision, or how, how was the decision made to hire you as a direct employee of, of Lower Bucks as opposed to just continuing with the contract with Medic? It's a really good question. Once the hospital got on solid ground financially, we we turned it around and we had a number of programs underway. The board felt that uh, we had sufficient momentum going that they didn't necessarily need the contract anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they hired me to stick around and uh, I was with them for another six years. That's neat. Can you tell us a little bit about Lower Bucks? You mentioned it was a 300-bed hospital. Was it not-for-profit or was it for-profit at the time? Yes. It's a not-for-profit hospital. It's a classic American story in that it was built uh, after World War II and opened in the, uh, about 1954 to serve a huge housing community called Levittown that was built by uh, William Levitt in, after World War II. He built one in um, New York that's very famous. He built one in New Jersey, and he also built one in Lower Bucks County that, that I think I've heard of uh, that. reached it. I think I've heard of oh, Levittown. Sure yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. It's, it's Some been sort of social famous. experiment, he, uh, right? There you go. Yeah, it, he made it uh, famous by having exactly the amount of wood and other materials needed delivered to each site, oh, and um, he could mass-produce homes. Well, okay. it reached into four different municipalities and expanded the population in, in the area, and they needed a hospital. So the local company, big company nearby, was called Rome and Haas, a big chemical company, and Mr. Haas told his employees that they had to have payroll deduction to help build this hospital. It was mandatory payroll deduction to build it. And then the auxiliary went door to door to raise money for it. So it was a classic community hospital wow. serving essentially a, a series of communities, much of which were brand new. So you said it was 300 beds at the time you were there. Uh, how many physicians, yep. kind of what were the level of specialties that you provided? Uh, it, it covered the gamut. Uh, it was a, a pretty good medical staff, uh, it, but it was um, 
not a um, teaching hospital, but for uh, an obstetrics residency program that was affiliated with Temple University. You know, as you imagine, through the baby boom years in the 50s and 60s, there was a huge OB service there servicing Levittown. But it, it covered most of the specialty areas. I think the medical staff was around 300 at the time, most all of which had been trained in Philly and you know, came out there to practice. How would you say your past experience, probably particularly your experience at Medic, but maybe other experiences as well as your education, how did all that prepare you for the CEO role? I had an opportunity to serve as an interim CEO. I was with Medic, one of our managed care, one of our managed contracts for hospitals in upstate Pennsylvania had a um, quick turnover, and I went up there for a few months to serve as the interim CEO until a permanent one could be found. And I found that a lot of what I was applying was what I had learned from my mentor and coach in, um, at Warminster. You establish goals, clear goals. Uh, you put together a team. You make sure the team is communicating and staying on the same page. I, I got used to having these management team meetings once, once a week on Tuesdays. Now they, they do huddles. But it was a way of uh, management by objectives and making sure that everyone understood what the objectives were and communicated well. What would you say was most surprising when you took on the CEO role? I mean, you had, so you'd had a little taste of it, but now when you stepped in at Lower Bucks, that was a long-term, a long-term thing. What surprised you the most about taking on that role? Uh, first, it fit. It was something that I felt I was trained for, and it, it had a natural fit to it to me, you know, to go to the various medical staff committee meetings, to go to the board meetings, and, and so forth. Uh, I think... We were able to make so many improvements to the place in a short period of time. I think the surprise to me was the ability to make significant impact in a short period of time. We improved the physician level in the emergency department. We competitively bid out the radiology department. We bought in some, some new types of equipment. Essentially, we brought a whole new energy to the place and got folks to believe in themselves even though the place at the time uh, when I got there was losing some money. Perhaps two of the bigger decisions that I made that stay with me were that the board approved a um, proposal because we had listened to the employees and we did the around-the-clock meetings, and they wanted daycare. Young staff, nursing staff, they wanted daycare. So even though we had lost money, we brought to the board because we had some some money in, in savings to build a daycare center on the property adjacent to the emergency room. And it worked. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was one of those things where a couple of the board members said, how, how are we going to do this if we're losing money? And a couple of the doctors on the board said, we really do need this. And it worked. And how, the other, what made, did, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to say, what, what was it about having the daycare on campus that, that really helped the hospital? Well, it helped retain employees. It was the, the number one request of, of the employees was to have daycare, to put it on the campus out adjacent to the emergency room, put uh, all the parents' concerns at rest that if anything was a problem with their child, they're, they're sat the emergency room right, right across the driveway. Was, that a, was retention a problem when you came in? It was a concern. They had a lot of long-term employees. And uh, with the loss of the financial loss that they had posted, there was a lot of worry. And it was right at the top of the list of what, what the requests were. So we listened to the employees and built it. Nice. And it worked. The, the, the other decision that was made was, was more community-oriented. Although we had some clinics at the hospital, the head of the emergency department came to me one day and said, you know, we get a lot of pediatric cases here where these parents don't have follow-up care available. In other words, the private pediatricians on the staff, about 10 of them, didn't take Medicaid or medical assistance. And so we expanded our clinic to include pediatrics, and that is still open today, 25 years later. It was an, uh, a need in the community and good access, and we married that up with a school-based health center, which still goes today, too. Wow. The 90s were kind of a, I mean, they were a boom era. We did have a recession in the early 90s. And, but what were the biggest macro changes going on kind of around you that impacted your strategic choices? Well, in the, in the early 90s, you know, we were focused on, on a, um, a rebuild of, of the plant. 
Mm. Um, what happened was uh, a lot of these decisions that I'm mentioning to you were late 80s, early 90s, but the whole thing was aimed at a, at a building that was original from 1954. So a lot of our effort was to get in the black and convince uh, Wall Street that we were good for a um, uh, tax-exempt bond issue to essentially uh, rebuild the critical elements of the hospital, which was cardiology, cancer, critical care, and laboratory. And so what we saw was, and this is before other crashes took place, we were able to grab onto the fact that Wall Street was still looking for these types of of debt instruments. And so we floated a bond issue of 30 some odd million and rebuilt the place. And wow. that was, that was, that was just critical because they're using all of those elements today. The real, the real, yeah. the real strategic issue was the fact that in the early nineties, one of the health systems started buying physician practices. So other hospital systems started buying physician practices. Hmm. And for, for lower box, we didn't have the capital to play in that market because a lot of the purchase prices were over market, frankly. And we were too busy building the building. So the, you know, the real question became, with a lot of primary care getting purchased, all of those primary cares had, primary, had promised to admit to a brand new building once it opened. And they were not able to fulfill that promise because they had been acquired. Oh, wow. So how did you re- respond to that? How did you react to that? Well, we had to look at what the projections were, look at the reality, and then start to take actions to try and match. And, you know, we couldn't invent revenues and we couldn't buy primary care practices. So a lot of our efforts were, were back out there to talk to some of those docs and make sure that they, they knew that this facility was, was there for them and, and reduce expenses all at the same time. So the whole idea of the growth and all the rest of it changed to a belt tightening. Uh, okay. So you left Lower Bucks Hospital in 1997 and made what I would consider a pretty major career change. You joined the firm Longshore and Simmons. What was Longshore and Simmons? Uh, that's when I got into executive search. Uh, what was happening at the time was that there was a lot of consolidation going on in the in the marketplace, and I was recommending uh, that uh, Lower Bucks um, be made part of another health system. Well, one of the things that when you're looking at, at different studies out there is to look at governance, the governance of, of health systems and how they work and what their bylaws look like. In my case, I had a governance board of governors where the um, chairman could only serve for two years, period, as chairman. So I was perpetually identifying, recruiting, and training folks to come onto the board to be chairman, but only serve for a couple of years. Well, in this particular case, I was recommending that the hospital go with one particular health system, only to find out that the new chairman of the board didn't want that. So at that point, we shook hands, and I did some consulting for a little while, and then I joined up to become an executive search consultant with Longshore and Simmons, which was a Philadelphia regional-based executive search company. And how did you get attracted into that field? Well, if you know Frank Zappa, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And in this particular case, my family was rooted in Philly. The boys were going to school locally, and I wanted to keep them in the region. So George Longshore was someone who I have known for since the 70s, and he had set up this uh, executive search company, and he said, I think he'd be good as an executive search consultant. So I uh, took the role on as a way of earning a living and uh, staying in the Philly region, thinking that I might be able to find another CEO opportunity in a year or two and then uh, write myself back in again. And here it is uh, 20 years later. <laughs> right. Because you said, you know, from from the time you basically went to graduate school that that's, that's what you wanted to do. You wanted to be a CEO. I, I wanted to run a, um, a community, community hospital. hospital. And I got, I got, I got to and do that to, for eight years. And now I, now I recruit them. <laughs> right. So what was it like making the change from operational leadership to executive search for you? It was different. Uh, you can get spoiled as a CEO of an organization as most everything is provided for you in a variety of ways. I mean, just the, the very, um, if you remember uh, the movie 9 to 5, just understanding how to operate a, um, a copier was, was something that, that needed some training uh, <laughs> at the time. But uh-huh. uh, nevertheless, 
uh, it wasn't long before I was in the uh, back in the C-suite talking to my friends and uh, working for them to recruit good C-suite talent to help them succeed. So that that got me right back in the game. So you, uh, I'm going to kind of fast forward a little bit. You you were at Longshore and Simmons, and then you made a transition to Tyler and Company, which is where you are today, which is also an executive search firm. So what is executive search? Uh, there are two types of search firms uh, out there. One is called retained and one is called contingent. Okay. There are some needs that an um, employer has where they may bring in two or three contingent firms. Pretty much that's where the term headhunting came from, where they push resumes. And so they, they may look to three contingent firms and say, look, we need somebody that can play the violin underwater. Go find somebody. <laughs> um, and that that company that provides the resume of the winner gets paid. A retained executive search firm is one that's brought on by an employer exclusively for a specific role, and it's like a management consulting engagement, which is, by the way, where executive search came from. It started out of the management consulting field about 50 years ago. Oh. And so with, with that service, it's a soup-to-nuts type of group of services that are provided to an employer. That is, you come on site, you meet with the key folks, you understand the culture and get a feel for the strategy and the goal of the individual to serve in this role. You write up a very detailed profile, and then you go out and you identify folks that might fit that role. And then working with the client, you narrow the field down, but then you vet the candidates heavily. You interview them, background check, references, and so forth, and present a dossier of information on candidates and then see it through first and second round interviews, help with the offer and then the relocation. So retained executive search is at risk because we provide a guarantee to our work. So if a um, placed candidate leaves for any reason within the term of the guarantee, then the executive search firm repeats the search for no fee. So that it's incumbent on the search firm to uh, make sure that they are presenting folks that they can stand behind. The, the concept is that we are finding folks that the employer doesn't either have the time, the resources, or in some cases, the wherewithal to, to go find appropriate candidates for certain positions. Then what we rely on is the fact that the placed candidate does well so that the client might use us a second and third time for other C-suite types of work. So working with a search committee of a board of a health system to find a CEO, you're working with a number of different types of personalities. Working with a hiring manager within the C-suite to go find a um, senior vice president for population health is not as complicated and doesn't have to take as long. Working with uh, search committees takes a bit longer. So the difference between retained and contingent here is you have a pretty strong incentive to make sure that the the employee works out, whereas a contingent firm is just going to kind of has the incentive to just kind of fire off resumes as fast as possible to try to win. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. it, it clearly, the, both sides are encouraged that the person that actually gets the job does well, but speed is, is one of the, the key issues for the contingent firm where they don't develop the candidate and they don't visit the organization to learn the culture and, and make the match that way uh, versus retained, which is much more uh, consultative. The value add that the executive search brings on the retained side is that when we meet with the leadership and review the strategy and the structure, we'll be providing feedback and thoughts about it all. And there's an interactive, collaborative, and consultative relationship involved. What makes a good executive recruiter? Uh, well, at the end of the day, it, it's the person that gets the engagements and is able to have their place candidates be successful. And therefore, the reputation grows that says, this, this person has a track record that is, is something that other clients might want to avail themselves of. And it, to me, one of, one of the key aspects of all of this is to, when we do our interview of, of candidates, to listen hard, understand where the, the goal is of the organization, where they want to take it, and then reference well. You know, the, the referencing 
in, in this business is very, very important because you're trying to find out how someone works and how that approach matches up with the chemistry and the culture of the organization itself. How do you go about referencing someone? You're trying uh, to really get into... We, yeah. We, uh, we obtain a release uh, from the candidates. And initially, when we present a candidate, we provide some references at the beginning of the search, which primarily those are the ones that have been provided by the candidate themselves. Once we get deeper into the search and into the second interview and it gets much more serious, then given the release, we're able to call pretty much anyone we want. What we're looking to do is not to, you know, we need to keep a confidentiality on, on these things as people have existing jobs. However, as they candidates go deeper into a search, they have, they're advised that the chances are greater that the word might get out and, and to be prepared for that. But the referencing is, is such where we start with those that are given to us by the candidate, and then it expands beyond that as we learn more about the candidate. And there may be people we know that have worked with a candidate or have worked in that organization or know people that have worked in that organization. So the, the types of referencing is mainly done by telephone and talking live to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, and we also do a background check, and uh, also there's a uh, social network check as well. Oh, so you so you you Google stock them a little bit to see what they do. Oh, of- it, it normally it, it, it often starts with a Google. Ah, okay. So just just for advice for as you know, I teach uh, undergrads here at, at University of New Hampshire. Give a little advice on internet footprint um, for professionals. Yeah, it, it is. It's it's really important to understand what the the impact of one. Once you put something out there, it seems to be out there forever. And you know, I have no problem with somebody. And you know, as a, in in high school, they just have to be aware of the fact that some of the stuff that they put up there can be seen by others that are that are uh, doing references. Therefore, be very careful. LinkedIn is something that we certainly do recommend for professionals and, and, and join. We're wary a little bit about Facebook still, although it's getting more and more on the professional side. But I have seen many candidates not move forward because of something that they posted years ago or something that's up there that's of an embarrassment. I mean, old days it used to be, you know, clean up your email address, you know, mm. uh, nothing, you know, hotmail.com, you know, all kinds of things that were out there, you know, making sure that your email address is professional that goes on your resume. But now it's just, it goes well beyond that. And so the advice to your undergrads is just think about how this is going to look in five years. <laughs> Can you walk us through kind of what a search process looks like, starting with kind of the client contact and a request to fill and Kind of where does that, how does that work? Okay. Uh, it, one of two, two ways. Sometimes a client will send out an RFP and three companies will respond and that might lead to a, um, a presentation to a group of folks at the potential client. And then uh, the client will then select a, a firm based on whether it could be the experience that they've had on a particular assignment or uh, culture, chemistry, uh, location, you know, a number of things go into why a client would pick a certain search firm. But once selected, the process is very, very uh, similar. That is, it starts with the site visit where the consultants from the search firm come on site and meet with several of the leaders of the organization. They have the job description, they learn the strategy, and they provide feedback on the structure. Then a position specification is developed that includes the detail on the the role, the candidate, and the region and the location. Then uh, an effort is made to cast what we call a wide net around the country to find folks that would fit that spec. And you you throw back the little fish and uh, you start to wire in on those that best seem to fit the profile. And uh, another advice to your undergrads and grads, for that matter, is when you're reading the profile of a, of a search, uh, read it carefully because a lot of work's going gone into it. If you don't match the specification in terms of what they're looking for from an experience standpoint, don't bother. Yeah. Um, it's, it's written very, very specifically. Um, lots of times these search committees and these companies want the round peg, round hole. And so they're hiring us to go find people that have done exactly that in many cases or something very, very similar to it. So when we 
present candidates at that point. We have interviewed them and done the background check and, and obtain references and provide what's called a dossier to the to the client. And then the client decides who they want to then invite into interview. Normally, in situations like this, it's a two-interview process. The first round is with a smaller number of people. The second round is with a wider group because C-suite folks in healthcare deal with a wide number of, of people, departments, personalities, and constituencies. And then from there, uh, we help them make a decision. Once they've decided who to hire, we provide advice on comp and benefit. And then we look into the relocation. And then we follow up once the person has started to make sure that things are going well. One thing we do is we provide an executive coach at the 90-day time. And it's based on the book, The First 90 Days, which is a great one, by the way. Okay. Very good. And it, it talks about what a new executive should do in the first 60 to 90 days on the job. It's very effective. And we do a 360 eval of the um, placed candidate at 90 days to be sure if any short-term uh, course corrections are needed. Wow. What does an executive coach do? It's a thing I've heard about, but I don't, I've never interacted with one. I'd be curious. It's a, it's a growing field. Uh, it's someone that is hired uh, by an executive uh, and or uh, an employer of that executive. And that, that person um, is essentially um, paired with the executive, and they get to know each other. They get to understand what the issues are on site. Oftentimes, the executive coach meets with some of the comrades in arms at the, at the organization. And then from there... Feedback is given on on different things. The coach is available for sporadic phone calls, but also provides uh, regular uh, meetings, whether they be on site or by phone, so that the coach is available to the to the executive on an ongoing basis. As that normally, as that executive has stepped into either a new role, or there's been some um, development plan recommended for that executive to improve in some skill or uh, competency. So in your process of kind of uh, working with the client and then vetting the potential candidate, you're looking for, I assume, appropriate skill level, but also goodness of fit? Yeah. Most folks, you know, as we go through the, it's called sourcing candidates, as we identify candidates and so forth, and we're looking for the match, you know, we're not going to prevent, uh, present anybody that doesn't hit the technical requirement, you know, sure. have X number of years experience and have this type of credential and so forth. And it's not the technical requirements that get people hired. It's not the technical requirements that get people fired. It's always the behavioral. So the behaviorals are very, very important based on what the needs are of the organization. There are some types of organizations, depending on where they are, they need a command and control person for whatever problem that they are, they're facing. In other cases, the organization needs somebody who's more collaborative and therefore provides other types of behavioral competencies to the table, listening skills, the ability to influence others that don't report to you, that type of thing. So it, it varies in terms of making the match. There are some organizations that you know their culture is such that they are very patient and allow everyone to speak, not too different than the, the Quaker meeting, uh, if you will, if you're familiar with the Friends. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, they're brought up in that type of culture. Others, the, the culture is, is more along the line of um, making sure that things are in order, but we have to report up to a national organization. And what is that culture? And what do they expect? So it, it really varies to make the right match based on the needs of the organization. I, I compare it to when you go uh, at Halloween, you go trick-or-treating in the same development. Every house in that development has a different culture. They may right. be in the same development, but they're not the same from house to house by far. And that's really what, what happens here. When you've done one executive search for an organization, you pretty much have done one executive search. Certainly when you've dealt with one search committee, you've dealt with one search committee. Okay. Does a search committee always know what they really need? So you're talking about like, maybe I need somebody more collaborative. Maybe I need somebody more directive. Do you help kind of help the, the, the search committee figure that out? Yeah, well, what we do on the uh, site visit, particularly on the, at the search committee level, we meet on an individual basis with members of the search committee, and we ask them pretty much the same type questions. And if there's a wide divergence, 
when we meet with them as a group at the end of that same day, we'll point that out and say, okay, you all agree that this person should be left-handed, should throw the screwball, should do this, should do that. But you have some disagreement here. Some of you think that what you need to do is to get somebody in here to marry us, marry the hospital up with something else. Others of you are just as uh, adamant that the organization should stay independent. You're going to need to work that out. Mm-hmm. Now, some, some, some things can get worked out after a person has been placed. Other things need to get worked out right up front. And, and, we'll, and we'll point that out to say, you know, you've got some time on this one, but, you know, there are some problems that, you, you know, listen, um, we'll come back. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, why don't you have a board meeting and maybe have a little retreat and get yourself on the same page on that particular issue? Because on that one, you really do need to be on the same page. Other things can get worked out during the course of the search, while others, the new leader can figure it out later. It, it just depends on what the severity of the disagreement is. What are the common things that go wrong uh, during a search process, if, if there are anything that go, commonly goes oh, wrong? A lot, lots of things. You know, it's funny you should ask that. I, when I first joined the, my first search firm, I asked a fellow who was already there, I said, how can a search go bad? How can it go wrong? Exactly the same question. You can have a group of candidates and the uh, organization – really wires into one or two. And during the course of the search, the one or two disappear for whatever reason. They take another job, they change their mind, something happens to them personally or within their family, and they evaporate. And you find yourself going to another, what's called another slate of candidates. So you almost start sourcing again to build it back up. That's that's one way. Another way is when you go to the end of the game and an offer is made and the person turns it down. You know, they look to the search company and say, well, geez, didn't you vet that person enough to know that they, you know, if we had hit the mark that the person would accept? Well, human beings are human beings, and sometimes that does happen. So those are a couple of examples. Okay. When you're talking amongst yourselves with other executive search consultants, what what do you say you wish clients would understand better? What do you find, and maybe a better way to say that would be, what do you find yourself educating clients on most often? Well, and here's, here's one of the bigger differences right now, and I expect it's going to change, but um, uh, Tyler and Company is now part of something larger called Jackson Healthcare, and it's a $600 million firm that offers a number of different services to hospitals around the country, primarily staffing. Prior to that, we were part of a network of search firms that was international. And we got to compare notes with our comrades in arms with the search firms overseas and so forth. But what we came to understand is that healthcare moves at a slower pace, primarily nonprofit healthcare, than private industry, I'll call it, you know, non healthcare. When you're doing a retained executive search for one of the Fortune 500, 100 companies, whatever, they're expecting that that search is not going to last much more than about uh, 45 to 60 days. Oh, wow. in, in healthcare, they, they go 120, 150. And with a search committee for CEO, often 150 to 180 days. So when, yeah, when we all get together, it's, it's like, okay, how can we get our clients to respond to the information that we're sending faster? On average, it takes us about 45 days to identify the winner that ultimately becomes a winner, but it takes another few months for that offer to get put out there, you know, for a number of different reasons. But on the, um, at the fortune 100 level though, they're, they're just, they're just motivated. As soon as the information comes over they're they're ready to interview and get people in. Okay. When you talk to, so again, same question, but reframed back towards the candidate, what do you find candidates need to be educated on and what do you wish they understood better in the pro about the process? Yeah, well, uh, the, the candidates are anxious that, um, to have the, the search move a whole lot faster, and there can be gaps of time that they don't hear anything. Well, wait a minute. You spoke to me. You interviewed me, and I haven't heard anything. Oh, wait a minute. I, um, I've interviewed on site for the job, and I'm still waiting to hear. So there can be some gaps of time along the way. So it's incumbent upon us to stay in touch with, with candidates and continue to advise them that, you know this process, and, and we've we've been given a um, a program at the ACAG, the American College of Healthcare Execs, each year at their Congress in Chicago, 
And it's the forum on executive search where we teach early careers and give a primer uh, or an update to later careers on the process of executive search because it is something that is unique in, in a number of different ways. But right at the top of that list is be patient. I guess, and given especially healthcare and the and the tendency to be a little slower. Yeah, that's right. You're right. On the other side, if you're if you're uh, 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 working with an executive search firm for um, some of the other companies that they see on the New York Stock Exchange or the S and P, if you've raised your hand for a job, you're going to know whether you got it or not within about 45 days okay. total. Okay. How? Let's talk a little bit about Tyler and Company. Is Tyler and Company is specifically oriented towards healthcare. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, it's about it's about 40 years old. It was uh, founded by a fellow by the name of Larry Tyler out of Atlanta, Georgia. And he was a, is still uh, with us, but a uh, very innovative uh, character who brought a number of unique things to the search field during the course of of his tenure running the company. He now works for Jackson Healthcare, our parent in representing a number of different products and services, if you will, on behalf of Jackson, which is a privately held firm out of Atlanta as well. And how is the firm organized? We have offices in Atlanta. I work out of what they call their Philadelphia office, which is in Chadsford, Pennsylvania. That's been operating for close to 20 of the 40 years. And then um, we have other offices in the Midwest and had one in, in Texas. So uh, we're organized now. We used to have uh, shareholders, but now that we're part of Jackson, uh, we're, we're organized in teams. So we have a Philly team, we have an Atlanta team, and then we have what's called the academic uh, division, which primarily services the uh, universities and academic medical centers. Okay. And what is your role? My role has evolved over the 16 years I've been there. I came on as a um, vice president. I became senior vice president and then president and okay. served as president of the company for about seven, eight years. And now I serve as senior vice president and I'm back in the Philly office with a book of business and doing executive search. So as senior vice president, you're doing search. What else are you doing as, uh, in that role? Well, I lead the, the CEO practice. I also uh, lead the physician leadership practice. When should a firm get in touch with an executive search firm like Tyler & Company? Our, our tagline is that when the search becomes serious, uh, most often a firm will try something on their own. And if they're not successful, that's when they start to look for help. Uh, depending on how critical the position is to the, uh, to the mission of the organization, they may turn earlier, they may turn later if, if they've not been successful. It varies depending on, on the organization and their culture. What's happened over the course of time is that with the advent of the different levels of LinkedIn, many of the larger health systems have developed a talent acquisition capability in-house that they'll do their own recruitment for a number of levels up to and including vice president. So when we say that we do a search for the C-suite, it's normally above that level, depending on what the organization is. Executive search is arranged such that uh, our fees are paid on a ret- and uh, they are hinged on what the first year compensation is for the executive itself. So plus or minus, you're looking at about 30% of the first year comp is what the fee is for an executive search company. And that's, so it's, so it's a, it's strictly a fee. It's not, if it takes an extra month, you don't get an extra, extra fees or is that contingent that, in there that, as well. No, 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 you've got it exactly right. It's a, uh, a fixed in terms of a percentage of the comp, or in some cases, uh, clients want a fixed number fee so that they know that if we find somebody more expensive, it's not going to hurt them. And normally, the executive search agreements run for about a year. And some of the companies that do physician search, staff physician search, have an arrangement that allows for some fees to go on month to month, but the uh, percentages are much lower. Do candidates ever get in touch with you? Do people, you know, someone who's maybe currently a COO at some hospital kind of thinking, you know, I might want to stretch my wings. Do, do they ever reach out to you and say, hey, I'm okay. And what, do you do, what mean, do you do with that information if you don't have well, an active search for them? Yeah, well done. Um, and that's one of the, uh, it can be a frustration for us because, you know, we're, 
were as good as the open searches as we have or were anticipating. However, the, the key to this business, in my view, is that you're continuously helping people. So if a candidate is interested in X, that's fine if we have a search going. If someone is saying, hey, keep me in mind if something breaks, then you know you need a database for that type of information. So we've got a uh, detailed database with lots of C-suite people in there with our own notes and our own um, comments in there so that should something come up, then we would draw into the database as well as reach out through LinkedIn and post and make phone calls. So there's a number of ways that we source, but it is back to your early careers. It is a feature that they should keep their communication open with folks in search firms that reach out to them. And there are a number of people out there that just have their head down, they do their job, and they have a clue about the market. There are other people out there that apply for every job that comes up. And then there's these folks in the middle that I think really have it right. And that is they keep their eyes open. They don't apply for everything, but they're aware of what's happening within the market and they have relationships with three or four search firms should something come up. So that's that's what we certainly recommend. I, I have people that I have known for years, you know, and I've got them labeled, if you will, and, and commented on in our database in, in some detail. Others will just pick up the phone and say, look, I understand you just did the, the search over here, and uh, I just want you to know that who I am, can I send you my resume? And the answer is yes. And so we've got you know, tens of thousands of, of folks on our own database, plus the different levels of LinkedIn are available. And we, you've mentioned LinkedIn a couple of times. Uh, how has LinkedIn and the ability to search Google and things like that affected the search industry? Did you, uh, I don't know if you have your undergraduates read a book called The Second Curve by Ian Morrison. I'm not familiar um, with it. It is, it's a, a revolutionary. The concept is that various industries have had revolutions like the railroad as, as one. Yep. And Ian Morrison talks about the second curve. It's like when the business curve, the normal business curve, is has changed because uh, there's second curve with technology or some invention. My, my feeling is that LinkedIn and the social network has been the second curve for executive search. And it's it's changed it in, in terms of uh, allowing employers the capability of doing a lot of their own uh, recruitment, and which has started to narrow the the field for uh, retained executive search. You know, what we do, we better do well. Has it squeezed the bottom out? So like executive, is it truly like, like you said, you're primarily being called on to do C-suite level recruitment. Would there have been a time when you might have reached below that? And has that kind of been, has the, is there pressure as a result of social network kind of stuff that is allowing firms to do more of their own? without the help of, an, of, a, of a search yeah. firm? Yeah, the answer is yes on all of those pieces. What it really has done as well is it's pushed everything up in that with some health systems, they have increased their capability to do even beyond the VP, you know, based on their, their talent acquisition department and their subscription to LinkedIn and so forth. So, yeah, it's definitely changed the field. We talked before uh, on a previous phone call about networking, and, and I bring this up because, as you know, I spent my career in the military, and I think Larry Tyler has, has written about this as well. A lot of military folks don't develop networking skills because we just our jobs just kind of get handed to us. What is important? What do people need to learn um, about networking to do it well? To, without doing it and being crass? Oh, it, it's, a, it's a legitimate question. We weren't taught it in graduate school at all. Larry Tyler gives a presentation called Network or Not Work, and he's published a book called Tyler's Guide to Healthcare, which is pretty much a primer on how to get a job in healthcare, which all the different pieces are there. Um, I happen to enjoy the book, What Color Is Your Parachute?, which also gets into it as well. Um, Networking is uh, something that is essential for everyone. The social media has allowed us to network in ways that we could have only dreamed of. Back in the day, you know, how would you network to somebody? Well, you could either make them a phone, make a phone call, send them a U.S. mail, a snail mail card, send them a fax. Well, today there's almost an infinite number of ways that you can stay in touch with folks that you know. 
and now you can stay in touch or reach out to folks that you don't know, depending on who they are or who they're friends with. So it is, it's essential in terms of moving your career forward, and it doesn't matter whether it's healthcare or any other industry. Networking is just crucial. So uh, you, you brought it up in, a, in an interesting way. If somebody is in the middle of a career search and they've got five people on their address book that they know but they haven't been in touch with in a few years, don't feel guilty. Just, just reach out. Yeah. Uh, some, some will answer the phone and get back to you. Some will not. You'll be surprised at who does and who doesn't, and it always is that way. But spend your time on the warm market. For those that return the call, ask if they can see you and spend time and just have a cup of coffee. You're not asking for a job. You're just catching up. And from there, you ask, oh, by the way, could you refer me to someone else? And then you grow your network that way. How would you recommend people working in the field? So you're an executive working in the field. How do you recommend people go about maintaining and sustaining and continuing to grow that network? Okay. Um, when I was in graduate school, um, I don't think I had a choice, but uh, I signed up and became an affiliate of the American College of Healthcare Executives. And as an association, they've, they've done quite well, in my view, to make themselves and keep themselves relevant. They have over 34,000 affiliates around the country, and they offer an opportunity for you to earn a credential called the Fellow in the American College of Healthcare Execs. Plus, you're a member of a uh, local chapter, which gives you almost an infinite amount of opportunities to network because every one of those chapters around the country has educational programs and networking programs. So that is is pretty much made to order for folks that have the master's degree uh, that's required to be part of the ACAG uh, to earn the fellow, not to be an affiliate. But that, that's one area that is essential. The AHA is another. And if some of your folks get involved with the physician practice, then you've got the uh, MGMA. So become part of an association and use that to your advantage from a networking standpoint, even if it's volunteering for, let's say, the program committee or, or the sponsorship committee, but get involved. So get involved so people recognize you, see you, know who you are. And you get to know others. Yeah. Uh, you get a feel for what's going on in your region. Now, there are some folks that are presently in one state or one city, and they're very interested to get opportunities presented to them in, let's say, the other side of the, the continent. Well, if you're an affiliate of the ACHE, you can become a member of a chapter elsewhere and get on their mailing list and see what's going on. And then when you're traveling out there, you can attend educational programs and get known or, or get visible. So there's different ways of doing it, and like you said, in a way that makes sense. Great. Let's transition and talk a little bit about leadership, and we'll wrap yeah. up on this. So what would you say is your leadership philosophy? Um, funny you should ask that because we, um, we ask every one of our candidates that question. We okay. go through a series of behavioral questions. What are your strengths? You know, what kind of people rub you the wrong way? What mm -hmm. motivates you to go to work every day? And what is your leadership style? Mine has always been uh, collaborative and team-based. I consider myself a coach and a mentor. I like to see others develop. And it's, I'm very proud of the fact that folks on my team 20 years ago, many of them are in C-suite or CEOs of, of organizations. In terms of what is needed going forward in healthcare especially, given this whole idea of moving from volume to value, it presents a different challenge. You're talking to somebody who broke in when cost reports, step-down cost reports were in play. Right. We couldn't help but make money because we got paid cost on most cases and we got paid charges on others. Well, those days are, of course, long gone. Then DRGs hit in the 80s, and now we have to understand what the population needs. And that's a different mindset, keeping people out of beds. Even on the CNN website today, they're talking about a $50 million hospital in St. Louis without beds. To me, uh, what I'm looking for in future leaders will be folks who are innovative, brave, and creative. You know, we've gone from this whole idea of having heads in beds to looking at how what used to be known as alternative care becomes primary care and how we can improve the health of the population that's out there. It's a completely different mindset. And for that, we need, we need folks who are not just thinking in the box. 
What would you say are characteristics and behaviors of a good leader? And how do you aspire to those yourself? Um, over the course of time, it's the ability to establish trust and it's the ability to listen. Um, listening is an art. And those folks that are good listeners um, have every uh, opportunity to be a good leader. But I will tell you, if you're not a good listener, you, you really uh, step on any chance you have to be a good leader. How, who did you learn those? Who did you learn your leadership philosophy from, and the and your feelings about listening and so forth? There was a uh, program I attended back in the seventies on listening skills, hmm. and it was it was eye opening. You know, don't sit behind a desk. You know, come out and sit in a chair and face face the person that you're talking to. Make sure the person knows that you have their your attention. Don't sit there and try to do your emails while you're in the middle of a meeting with somebody. That sounds so basic, but it happens all the time. Don't look at your watch. Make sure you, the person that's talking to you knows that that person has your complete attention. It and there are other other ways of making sure that you're actually hearing what's being said and you're not and you're just not acting it. But uh, to me, there are ways of training to be a better listener. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, as it as it relates to the collaboration, the teamwork, the ability to inspire and influence, um, I would advise your, your undergrads that if they want to get some good experience early on, they should volunteer to be part of a team and watch how teams work because that's what this is all about is the ability to influence uh, without having people report to you. And also, if your undergrads can be part of a community health needs assessment early. I did my first one 25 years ago with six other hospital CEOs, and it was eye-opening. Wait a minute. You know, we're not talking about cardiac cath. We're talking about having people actually have access to their primary care office or dental care or, you know, there's a huge need in diabetes or the percent of smoking is over 30% or obesity, you know, what are the needs of the population that you're serving? That's a completely different thing than whether you're going to buy an MRI from GE or Philips. What would you say is, so one of the things you talked about is when you meet with organizations, you, I, you get a sense of their culture, you're looking for the right kind of fit. What is organizational culture and why is it important? Um, it's pretty much everything. <laughs> you know, folks, where they work, you, you can tell what, what it is that they believe in and how they act. There are some, some uh, clients that are more functional versus dysfunctional. There are others that have just discovered what it takes to, to get on the right track. Others are seriously in trouble. It, it varies. So, you know, for me, it's, it's a matter of, and, and you, know, you talk to five or six leaders independently and if they're all on the same page and saying the same words as it relates to the strategy and the goal and the mission of an organization fine but uh, if you've talked to the first five or ten and you find that there's a wide variation in what the mission is and what it is we're really trying to accomplish here that that sends up a red flag interesting you mentioned you had a mentor in your in your early work what would you what does a good mentor do shares their thoughts as to why things are important, allows you to be in meetings that are important, exposes you to experiences without letting you sink, continues to train. Right now in Philadelphia, we have a rookie quarterback, and we're watching how the coach talks to the quarterback each and every time he comes off the field quietly and just doesn't allow the person's head to go down or, or reinforces it. Mentoring coaching uh, for an early career is, it was just essential to me because it, it kind of molded me in terms of how I operate. And do you mentor people now? I've mentored people. Uh, from that example, I've mentored, I've used that uh, uh, example my whole career. So in, in conclusion, I wanted to ask you, you, know, you mentioned a couple of books. You mentioned the first 90 days and the second curve. Any other things that early careerists in particular should be reading, experiences they should be trying to pursue? Could you give any general advice? Yes. As I mentioned, if you have the opportunity to volunteer to serve on a health needs, a community health needs assessment, get that experience early on and understand how 
uh, what the needs are in a, in a community. Second, if you have an opportunity to, to volunteer for a team and serve in a team situation, that's, that's great experience to understand the dynamics of, of team play. The books that I have enjoyed recommending to people would include a book called Top Grading, G-R-A-D-I-N-G, written by Bradford Smart, which talks about the types of employees that are out there, A players, B players, and C players. It's extremely valuable. If someone is interested in population health, there's a book written by Robert Evans. Dr. Evans is a Canadian author uh, who kind of is the godfather of population health. Why are some people healthy and others not? Fundamentally, it comes down to folks' self-esteem, and from there they can learn how to stay healthier. But if you haven't gone after the behavioral question, the behavioral health question and the self-esteem question, you're not going to achieve your goals of, of improving population health. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really great. I've enjoyed it very much, and I wish you the best of success up there in New Hampshire. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.